What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. Kerry Sackville is a writer and columnist for Sunday Life magazine in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. She's also the author of five books, including her most recent, The Secret Life of You, How a Bit of Alone Time Can Change Your Life, Relationships and Maybe the World. Now, those listeners who know me well will know that even though I am endlessly curious, I am not a voracious reader of paper books. And although I own thousands of books, I'm more of a skim reader than a cover-to-cover gal. So I even surprised myself when I deep-dived into Kerry's latest book and I found myself highlighting away like a kinder kid who's drunk way too much red cordial. In this conversation... Kerry explains that while we want and crave solitude, we avoid it like the plague. And when we do have alone time, we often fill the space with distractions, including other people or technology, work or TV, rather than becoming more deeply acquainted with ourselves. In this informative and perhaps at times rather confronting chat, and I mean confronting because there were some truth bombs for this pod host, we discuss the oddly nonsensical societal rules of solitude that leave many of us feeling that while alone time is acceptable in small doses, being in the company of others is often sold to us as the norm and the ideal. Whether the struggle to sit with solitude relates to our relationship status, patterns of work, family and home dynamics, expectations of self, friendship circles, personality style, belief systems, fears or our social media usage, Carrie shares her own awakenings and the significant benefits of alone time that she found, lamenting that she wished she'd turned inwards earlier and not waited until she was single after her 17-year marriage ended to figure out who she was. While we all know that downtime is vital and being with ourselves provides a richness like no other, it's easy to override or avoid this need. Reading Kerry's book was a welcome wake-up call to me to come back to self and she adeptly explains why in this illuminating episode. Here's my chat with Kerry. Uh, Kerry, welcome to Human Cogs. Our paths first crossed in, I think it was eight years ago in 2015, when I was rightly or wrongly uh, doing Married at First Sight as one of the experts in season one and season one only. And I think you mentioned in your Sunday Life column that you were watching the show. I did, yeah. We did. And I loved that first season and that to me was the only uh, really genuine, powerful season where people actually fell in love and it was about bringing people together to fall in love and then, you know, jump the shark. And I have to say, and I've told you this before, I so admired you leaving the franchise when you saw that it wasn't going Mm. in the original direction and now it's just a horror a horror 
show. And I used to do a podcast years ago, kind of commenting on Married at First Sight, and I had to bow out of it because I couldn't even watch it mm. to um to do that commentary. It's just yeah. So kudos to you. <laughs> well, I'm grateful because it's how we found each other. So that's what's yes, led to today. That's is. what I was reflecting on before we started recording. Now, Oscar Wilde was known for saying that life imitates art far more than art imitates life. But I'm not so sure that's correct. Well, I think it, there's there's truth to that. But the reason I'm raising that is because I had a squiz at your five books, the titles of your five oh. books. And oh, my kids give me such a hard time about it. I would it's say a progression. It's a, yeah, it, yeah. yeah, help me understand, oh. help our listeners understand. Oh. How do you reckon your five books reflect all the parts of you? Oh, look, Sabina, that is so <laughs> funny because my son in particular, he's 24 and he always laughs he says it just shows the course of my life and he he seems to think it's showing the course of my life to kind of plummeting off a cliff when it's actually not like that but it starts with um when my husband does the dishes a memoir of marriage and motherhood so obviously I was married then and then the next one was a little book the little book of anxiety confessions from a worried life so I obviously had a lot of anxiety at that time and then we skip ahead and my next book was out there a survival guide to dating in midlife so you can see that I'm no longer married um, and I'm focusing on dating and then <laughs> the fourth book is the life-changing magic of a little bit of mess so a book about embracing mess and and imperfection. Um, so yes, my son will say, "Well, then you you know you entered your your chaotic, messy era." And um, this latest book is the secret life of you: how a bit of alone time can change your life, relationships, and maybe the world. And so my son will go, "Oh, so you've gone from you know marriage to anxiety to dating to mess to alone." <laughs> and it's not quite like that, but I can see how that narrative arc is quite compelling. <laughs> well, flesh it out for us because I know that's not the case. You know, your son knows not, that's not the case as well. But, of course, what we write about is and what we talk about and where we put our energy is is what often we're experiencing, what matters to us at the time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And, in fact, so, you know, the, the first book was about marriage and, and motherhood and then anxiety and then I did get divorced and I wrote about dating in midlife and I wrote a guide for women like me who were approaching dating um you know 40s 50s and beyond and I had never dated you know I was I was 17 when I first got into a relationship and I had back-to-back -back relationships till I divorced at 46 so it was a huge learning curve and I wrote the book that I wish I'd had at the time um and then the mess book is a bit of fun um and it's a riff on um, Murray Kondo, you know, the life-changing magic of tidying up. And there is a serious message in it, which is that it's okay to have an imperfect home, an imperfect life, an imperfect body. Um, but this latest book is not about being lonely because my son always says, oh, the book about loneliness. And a lot of people hear, you know, the words alone and immediately jump to lonely. And it's about the opposite of that. This mm. book is about the importance of solitude and solitude is actually the opposite of loneliness loneliness is the gap between the connection that we desire at any given time and the connection that we actually have and solitude is about connecting with ourselves and feeling um, comfortable being alone and feeling comfortable alone with our thoughts and the book is um, about really the the transformative powers of learning to be comfortable in your own company and i think that it is 
so important, um, especially in the age we live in when it's so um, easy to never actually be alone with your thoughts. Um, you know, back when we were growing up, we all had time alone with our thoughts. We had no choice. I mean, if I was in my bedroom when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, what was I going to be doing? I was either reading, I was writing my journal, or I was thinking my thoughts. I didn't have a phone in my room. I didn't have a television. Um, if I was on the bus, if I was walking to school, if I was sitting on the beach, I was thinking. And now every time we're physically alone, we can just pick up our phones and be connected to other people and be consuming content. So it's very easy to go through life without ever spending time in your own head and thinking and contemplating and reflecting um, and we're really missing out. Mm. I've read your book and I, it really impacted me. And in the book, you said in the early pages, one of the great paradoxes of our modern world is that we see the opportunity for solitude as desirable and a great privilege. And yet when we're offered a bit of solitude, many of us avoid it like the plague. And when we do have time alone, we don't use that time to connect to ourselves. Instead, we message a friend, blast a podcast or play Candy Crush. And then you even go on to conclude we can avoid ourselves for our entire lives. Yes, and some people actually do. You know, I interviewed a lot of people for this book. I interviewed some you know, prominent Australians and I um, did a survey with just dozens and dozens of people um, I connected with on social media and some of them I interviewed more thoroughly and some just kind of filled out a survey for me. And it's incredible how many people are never, ever alone with their thoughts. They distract themselves from morning till night. And sometimes it's quite deliberate and you hear people say, I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. I'm scared of what's in there. Um, and other people just don't prioritise it. And they can literally go for weeks, months, years without ever just stopping and, you know, putting down the phone, taking off the headphones, you know, turning off the screen and thinking. Mm. And the consequences of that are really quite profound, you know, for everything from um, your mental health, your emotional well-being, self-awareness is a big one, um, creativity, and a huge one that's obviously relevant to um, this podcast is relationships. You know, it's really bad for your relationships if you can't ever spend time alone and if you if you don't learn to nurture and support yourself, if you're constantly looking to other people to fill, you know, fill your cup, so to speak. You know, I see it as a huge problem and I think also on a macro level, the fact that we need alone time to develop our moral compass, that's really important. And if we never take time to just sit back and contemplate and think about who we are, what we believe, think about what we're reading, what we're hearing. It's very easy then to get caught into, you know, unhelpful thought patterns, but worse, you know, conspiracy theories and, and extreme ideology and hate. And, you know, research shows that so many people who get sucked into those kind of vortexes on, on the internet, it's not that they're bad people. It's not that they're subscribing to some kind of cohesive, um, malevolent system of thought. It's just a failure to stop and think. You know, it's people consuming endless, endless YouTube videos or scrolling through endless Instagram and becoming radicalized. And it's literally because they're not putting down their phone and spending time thinking, oh, does that make sense to me? You know, do I really believe that? 
Is this how I want to be moving through the world? When you describe all of those touch points that people have, I think a lot of us would say, oh, I have time alone, which when they say that, they're saying I'm not with another human in yeah. person. But when you're connected to your phone, even when you're reading a book, I mean, I don't know as an author, as a writer, your thoughts on that. But when you're reading a book, you are, as you say, being influenced or at least being asked to consider other people's thinking. Well, it's still consuming content, isn't it? And I look, I, I think reading's wonderful. And I think reading a book connects us to another person in a way that's similar to a meaningful connection, the kind of thing you have in a conversation. I think it's very different to consuming social media. Mm. But I would still suggest that that people who are avid readers need time away from books. You need time away from all content. Um, we need time to work out who we are, what we think, mm. right? What what we want, what we believe, mm. um, what what our fantasies are, what our fears are, what our you know what our desires are for the future, just what our opinions are. Even you know, I read a book recently, a novel, and it's been really hyped. But I try not to read the hype before I read a book. And afterwards, I put it down. I thought I just don't know what I think about this. And my immediate um, kind of immediate response is to go and Google what other people are saying so I can work it out. But I know enough now to say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to sit with it for a bit and try and work out my opinion first and then I can go and see what other people think. Mm. And if we don't give us that space, then we never work out what we believe. We're constantly thinking about what other people believe or what other people want or what other people desire for us or even how other people see us mm. and we see ourselves reflected through other people and we need to stop and and develop our own opinions and thoughts and, and get in touch with who we are as people. Otherwise, honestly, it's such a waste. You realise when you get to this age, you know, I'm now God, 54, and you realise you are the person who's going to be with you for, for your whole life. There is no one else. You know, I've had different partners. You know, I've had three children who are all growing up who are eventually, you know, one of them's left home, the other two will leave home. Friends come and go or you know, are more or less capable of kind of giving you the intimacy that you desire at any time. The only constant in your life is yourself. And if you don't spend time getting to know yourself, that person who is with you your whole life, then you are missing out on so much. And how can you live fully if you don't really know who you are, what you want, what you believe, um, what your tastes are? Mm. So you're talking a lot there about our, our thinking selves, our cognitive selves, and you're reminding me about a, um, a clinical client. I'm not doing a lot of clinical work anymore, but a clinical client that I saw who had a, a really um, quite a deep history in trauma and he read books in a cupboard. It was a way to hide away from the world and to deep dive into the fantasy life of something that was not his at all, that was totally unrelated. But literally it's like um, a box in a box, you know, those Russian dolls as I'm yeah, describing yeah. now. It's sort of like an emotional Russian doll because he's yeah, in, babushka in doll, yeah. Yeah, babushka doll. He's in yeah. the story of the book and the book's in his hands and he's in a cupboard with the book. So it's just layer upon layer to disconnect from the world around him. But I think we're talking more than cognition here. We're talking about feelings, not just what yes. you think think but what you feel isn't yes. we don't want to sit and feel it feel it so we distract yes. ourselves and some of the things of course we've all heard ad nauseum we've talked about technology to the cows come home about how that's an obvious hijacker of time and solitude with self 
But there's so many other insidious ways we disconnect from the way we feel that are less obvious. Yeah. Our culture is really bad at dealing with any sort of negative emotion. And so what happens is when we feel something that isn't happiness, we we have this weird belief that we should be happy all the time. And if we're not, something is terribly wrong. But life is full of pain and life is full of negative emotions. It's part of life. And so what happens is we feel something. We feel grief or we feel anger or we feel fear or anxiety or resentment or envy, any of the difficult emotions. And we don't want to. So we distract ourselves either with social media or with alcohol Mm -hmm. or with drugs or with just other people. So I know that, you know, when I was single, I spent years and years on the dating scene and I was dating, like at times I really shouldn't have been dating and I would, you know, feel something, I'd feel something negative and I'd, I'd like distract myself with some guy, you know, and I just, it could be just someone I was talking to online or I'd, I'd you know, start swiping or I'd make a date, or, you know, anything to avoid that, that sense of fear about being by myself, that emptiness. And it took me so long to realize that if I just sat with it, mm. you know, if I just allowed myself to feel my feelings, eventually they pass, mm. you know, but when you're constantly trying to push them down and distract yourself with other people, with social media, with alcohol, whatever, you don't actually work through your emotions and they come back. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't get rid of them by ignoring them. You have to allow yourself to feel your feelings. Mm. And so we need that space. And when we don't allow ourselves that space, then we are just creating problems for our future self. Mm. You've told me in the past, Kerry, that, and you've mentioned it in your book too, that your sister died as an adult and you were very close to her and very connected. And as I'm listening to you talk now about all the emotions that we all park and ignore and pretend aren't there, I wonder how this story is relevant for you with regards to your grief and the dating and the swiping and the writing and the connecting and the drinking, whatever whatever it is, whatever. How how does that look for you after the grief? How many years ago was it that she died? Oh, she, you know, it was a very difficult time. She died, Tanya died, I I calculate in terms of how old my youngest child is because she died three weeks before my youngest was born. Um, I was 38 weeks pregnant at the time and my baby was born at 41 weeks. And because of that time in my life, because of my baby being born and then I had a really difficult birth um, and I was in hospital for a bit and it was a really, you know, scary time and I had a lot to process. And and I remember being in the hospital and completely breaking down was probably about day three, four, you know, when emotions are running high anyway. Mm. And I became overwhelmed with grief and all these other, you know, emotions, fear and just distress and despair. And they called in a mental health nurse because I had been sobbing for, I think, 24 hours at that point. And she said to me, you know, well, I said to her, you know, I can't stop crying, can't connect with this baby. I'm just lost in this grief. And she said to me, you know what? You've got three things going on. You're processing the birth, you know, the physical birth. She meant you're processing the fact that you have this new child and you're processing the loss of your sister. And she said, the baby needs you now. The birth is is really fresh. The grief can wait, like you can park that. And so what I would normally say is you need to sit with your feelings immediately and process them. But I, I didn't have that luxury. So I had to park it for quite a while. I mean, you know, it's like you come home with a newborn. I had two other children as well. My marriage was not in a great place. 
Um, my parents were grieving, so I didn't, you know, I had I had a lot to deal with. And so I sort of parked it for quite a while and then for years afterwards would find myself, um, you know, listening to, like I'd hear a song or I'd see something on TV about siblings or, uh, you know, I'd hear a friend talk about going out with her sister and suddenly it would come up. And one time I remember being at the funeral for the grandparent of a friend and I hadn't met this grandparent. Like this was, I was there for the friend. And I was sitting you know, at the at the funeral and suddenly started to cry and I was sobbing. And it was really embarrassing because it's kind of not the dumb thing to be sobbing at, at the funeral of someone you don't actually know. And I ran out and I was like, at that point, I thought, yeah, I, I still have more processing to do. So I then tried um, to give myself time to think and to reflect and journal and all of that. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult process and then you know you asked about kind of the dating thing you know I came to divorce um really having absolutely no idea how to be by myself and I understand now and I've written about that I understand that is that is a really difficult position from which to approach dating like what I should have done and what I would recommend to other people to do in that situation is to to do what it took me seven years to do, which is to not date, to actually sit and and learn how to be comfortable by yourself, to sit with those uncomfortable feelings, that fear of being alone, that fear of being single, that that not having an intimate partner to nurture and comfort you and to learn to nurture and comfort yourself. And only after you do that can you form healthy relationships. But it took me a long time to figure that out. Um, and, you know, society doesn't help does it like it doesn't make it easy for single people no and also there's a developmental overlay there listening to you explain that trajectory that when you're younger you start dating and you haven't developed that sense of comfort with yourself and then the dating ball rolls along and then maybe one leads into another and then maybe you get married so when do you have that time with a more mature and present mind to do self and not be in a relationship unless you divorce later in, in, in midlife or later? Yeah. Well, I, was, I started dating um, my ex-husband when I was 17. Now, we actually split. I dated him for a few years. We split and I had a couple of other relationships, but they literally piggybacked off each other and then my ex and I got back together and we got married. And I had never, ever been single as an adult. Mm. And at 17, I was a baby. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really unformed. And so I'd never, I, I didn't know anything about how to move through the world as a single person. And you know, something I like wrote in my book, you know, one of the first things I did when I, you know, when the kids and I moved into our apartment is I had to buy all sorts of things from scratch. And I had never done that because my ex-husband, um, is an architect. He um, he has very you know, clear tastes about interior design, and he would pick all the furniture and the furnishings. And I got stuck very early on. I had to buy sheets for my bed, and I'd never bought sheets for myself, you know. I, and I had no idea what my tastes even were. And I remember spending hours and hours. It was the first thing I bought. I, I bought the sheets before I bought a bed, you know. I bought the sheets before I bought furniture. I just. I, I had no idea. Do I like stripes? Do I like plain colours? Do I like white? And then I, I settled on these floral sheets, which I still love. They've fallen apart now. Um, and it was a huge step for me just to figure out 
what sheets I like. Mm. Um, I had never had the, the opportunity. And, you know, I see, I, I find it really interesting. The world is changing, but I still see a lot of young people pairing up really, really early. And I always feel a little bit anxious when I see, you know, young people getting getting married in their 20s and they've been together since they were teenagers. And I think they will never have that opportunity to move around the world as an adult, um, like an autonomous adult, unless they end up you know, divorced down the track. Yeah. So I, I, and you, as you say, you said in the book, mostly I wished I'd turned inwards earlier and not waited until I was single to find out who, who I was. So if anyone's listening now of our younger listeners and they're not married and they're not engaged in a long-term committed relationship, what are they, what would your takeaways be? Or, or if they are, if they are, what can how can we dial this this um, getting to know self when we're single and also when we're in a relationship so that it doesn't hinge on either our relationship status? I think, it's, you know, for single people it's really important to have periods of time where you're not dating because even the process of dating, it takes a huge amount of energy, it's really exhausting and it can feel really disconnecting as well. Like it's really, really lonely to sit opposite a person over a date when you don't feel any sort of connection. You actually feel worse than if you stayed at home. But it's it's more the quest. Like love is is so worthwhile, but the quest to find love can be incredibly draining and heartbreaking and dispiriting and um, disconnecting. So I think it's really important to have times when you're not on that quest, where you just sit with yourself and learn to be okay yeah. as a single person and to not put off until you're in a relationship, things that you could do now. So travel by yourself or go and see that movie by yourself or or take yourself out to eat or connect with your friends or your family. Um, Don't see singledom as some sort of waiting room, like Mm. on the way to to happy couple town, because it's not. It's a perfectly valid and often quite empowering place to be. And then if you are in a relationship, particularly when you're young, but always, I think it's so important to find the space to carve out alone time and to to look inwards and work out what you like and want and desire aside from from your partner and that can be really hard particularly you know if if you've been together since you're really young and you're kind of almost merged together in your taste or if your partner is quite forceful in what they like you know I see it all the time with friends who'll say or or they'll they'll just defer to their partner or they'll say I would have loved to see that movie but you know Bill didn't want to so we didn't go to see it go to see the movie you know, see it yourself and ask yourself instead of constantly saying, well, I know that this is what he likes or this is the kind of food we eat together, even to ask yourself the question, what do I want to eat? What do I want to see? What do I want to read? Where do I want to go? Even if you can't do it, even if everything is a compromise and you end up having to find a middle ground, just to be able to answer those questions is helpful because it gives you more of a sense of who you are and and gets you closer to, you know, cl- close to connecting with yourself. So the takeaway there is we can be doing these things whether we're single or not. I think there could be a misconception that this is about, we're talking about relational status and we're not. We're talking about no. regardless of you're in a relationship or not, getting in touch with self. And I love the point that you said in the book also, Kerry, that there are rules of solitude, societal rules yes. of solitude. You said um, it's fine to be alone at the end of a day, a long and exhausting day dealing with people but it's not so fine to spend a Saturday night alone when 
other people around on the town and it's very pleasant to eat breakfast alone and read the news but not so much to eat dinner solo in a restaurant and that it's sensible to be single for a while after a breakup but that it's tragic to remain single for several years and then you rather painfully reflect that alone time is acceptable only in small doses but being in company is normal the default and the ideal Yes. So I want to make it clear that is what society tells sure, us. Not I don't you. believe any no, of that. No, I know. That's what yeah. society tells us. And it it's just, you know, anybody who's ever been single will know that people regard it as this really weird, aberrant state. I mean, I was asked constantly when I was single, why are you still single? You know, or, or they'd say, oh, don't worry, you'll find someone. You know, I'm never asked why you're in a relationship. Mm, when you were married. Mm. Yeah, never. You know, it's perfectly fine, as I said, to go down and get a cup of coffee by yourself um, or even have lunch by yourself. But when we see people eating solo in a restaurant, it's like, oh, poor things. And what is that? What is that that um, later in the day it's less acceptable to be so alone? Bizarre. It's so bizarre. Or, or that it's so brave to go to a movie by yourself. Uh. I mean, really, like having having another person next to you doesn't actually change your perception of the movie or your enjoyment. If anything, seeing a movie by yourself helps you to enjoy it more because you're not constantly dividing your attention. Even when someone's just sitting next to us, we're constantly aware of, are they having fun? Are they shifting around? Do they want popcorn? What having a companion at the movies or a play or traveling does is really, it takes away the stigma of doing it by ourselves. Mm. You know, it's, it's really about stigma. And we actually form stronger memories when we are by ourselves. So, you know, I wrote in the book, I, I went to New York in 2019 and I spent time with a group, but I also spent time by myself. And my strongest memories are of the time I was by myself, you know, when I was wandering through the streets alone, when I went to see Hamilton alone, when I went to have a burger and chips by myself, fries, <laughs> burger and fries. Yeah, double fries. Um, double fries, triple <laughs> fries. Those experiences really imprinted on me. And it, it's very empowering to do things alone, uh, but it also expands our life. You know, if we're constantly waiting for permission from other people to do things, then we're going to be so limited. So, you know, if you want to, you know, do an art class or go and see the symphony, but you're waiting for, you need a friend to go with you or you need your husband to go with you, you're limiting your life. Mm. Really, I found the book very powerful. It spoke to me on so many levels. I know it will to to so many people who read the book. We're giving a lot of uh, airtime now to relationship status, but 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 this is not just about relationship status. Definitely because not. It's, it's also about society accepting and encouraging and celebrating doing nothing. So we're yes. not talking about going to a theatre or doing a pottery class or lying in a bath or whatever, but actually nothing. And it reminded yeah. me of a time I wrote an article in The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, um, couple of year, a few years ago that I was um, recounting that I'd had foot surgery and eye surgery at the same time. And so I was out for the count because I got a patch on my eye, my foot's in plaster because I just thought I'm just going to do it. You know, do it all. Yeah. I, I'll do the yeah. eye, seeing as the foot's happened, I'll do the eye on top of it. And after writing this article, so many people reached out to me and said, I wish I was you. I wish yeah. I was you doing nothing. And I thought, hang on, my eye is hemorrhaging blood. My foot has a thousand stitches in it. And you wish 
you or me, clearly what they were expressing was that they wish they were able to give themselves permission to do nothing without ripping their eye out and ripping their foot apart. Yeah. It was just such a strong sentiment. Yes. More so for women perhaps. Yeah. That doing nothing is not okay. Well, our society doesn't value that. Our culture has this whole culture of productivity, right? So you have to be busy all the time. And it's like we compete with each other for how busy we are, you know? How is your day, Sabina? Oh, God, I did this, this, and this, and this. Oh, me too. I, I've been rushing around all day. You know, it's almost shameful to admit that we have downtime. And downtime is so important. And, you know, I think spending time with yourself, spending time just reflecting, being alone with your thoughts, doing nothing, lying on the couch, which I often do, and I can go off into these wild daydreams or, you know, delve into my memories, that's just as valuable, more valuable than spending time with another person. You would never say, oh, you know, I met my friend Debbie today and, you know, spent an hour chatting. You would never say, oh, what a waste of time. So why is it a waste of time to spend that time with ourselves? Mm. Like it's obviously so important and we need that just, you know, we need that for our emotional regulation. Um, to to have time, as we talked about, to feel our feelings. We need it for creativity. Mm. You know, if we ever want to do anything creative, we need time to think. And we need it just to be able to have an original thought. Mm. You know, otherwise we're just, we're like chat GPT. We're just regurgitating the thoughts of other people. Um, And we need it for self-awareness. And we can't live fully if we don't know who we are and what we want. And and how do you get to that place? You need time to think. Mm. So that downtime is just it's absolutely vital and we need to be putting that into our day. And if, if you don't have time in your day for that, then you need to remove one of your distractions during other times of the day. So say you've got a long drive, don't listen to the radio on the drive, right? Actually just spend the time with yourself. Or if you're exercising, perhaps exercise without music so you can just hear your own thoughts. Um, there are ways to incorporate it into your day. Mm-hmm. Now, the number of people who I spoke to who were like double and triple up on tasks, so there'll be you know, listening to an audio book while they're exercising um, and then interrupt that to be making calls or, or you know, it, it, just constantly got to be be productive and doing things and, and reaching their goals. And what's happening is they're missing out on, on connecting with themselves. Mm. Yeah, I relate. I do relate. I don't dribble task it so much, but I relate to being, it sounds like an overused word, but I, an empath. You know, I, I feel people's energy around me. I feel people's. Yeah. I was in the supermarket like this week, and there was a young couple talking, and they were sort of having a bit of an argument. And I was so drawn into. <laughs> I mean, of course, I started talking to them, and then he, or he made then a joke. He said, "I think we." She said, "We need olive oil." This is after they'd had a bit of a spat. And then he said, what kind? And she said, maybe, do we need extra virgin? And he goes, oh, we need something that's... We need something that's got more experience than that. And she and I burst out loud. Um, I was so in, involved yeah. in their conversation that yeah. I chortled out loud to the olive oil gag. She said, I don't even get what you're talking about. She didn't even get it. It went right over her head. So sometimes being so connected to the energy of other people around us it might be good for them at times, not for this couple. They didn't need me to buy into their olive oil discussion. But it takes away from me being an empath with myself. Yes. And I find, you know, I'm so connected to how my kids feel particularly. And if one of them is having a, a bad day, then I feel that so deeply. And that's why also alone time is really important because I need a break from 
other people's emotions and energy and and energy. energy. Yeah. yeah, I really do. And I I know for people, you know, in relationships or people who are close to family or friends. You know, I had a long conversation with a girlfriend the other day, and I I got off the phone feeling quite upset because she was upset and and. You know, when we feel other people's pain really keenly, we need a break from that just so that we can, again, refill our cups to be mm. to to be replenished because otherwise we're no good to anyone, mm. you know. And I know I need time alone to process and to, I guess, debrief with myself so that I can then go out and be empathic again. Mm. But as you said, you need to be empathic with, with yourself and you need to be in touch with your emotions and I think the most important thing is to learn to nurture yourself. Mm. They're, they're words that we hear all the time, self-care, self-compassion, nurture yourself. You know, you can sort of reel them off but but not practice them. They cannot be meaningful and they don't land or you think they belong to someone else and not to yourself. Yeah. And I wrote about this in a very practical way. Like I literally speak to myself. Mm. I talk to myself. Like just like you're asking me questions, I will ask myself questions. So I do it a lot in the car. And it doesn't matter if people see me because they probably think I'm talking on the phone. But I'll say, you know, how do you feel about that? Why did that bother you? Why did that conversation bother you? What do you think about her? What are you excited about? Like I literally interview myself. And it's so strange because I'm asking the questions and I'm often still really surprised at my answers. Mm. And then when I'm experiencing something difficult, if I'm feeling upset or I'm feeling anxious or uh, I'm feeling disappointed about something, I'll talk to myself and I'll say the things that that I would want someone else to say to me. And I have people in my life who can say it, but I think it's really important I say it to myself. Mm. I'll say, oh, you know, poor thing, but it'll be okay. You'll be all right. There's other things to look forward to or, you know, this person you're worried about will be okay or tomorrow's another day. You can get through this. Mm. And it actually works. You know, it's just like a muscle that you have to keep using. But it's very practical. I'm not a woo-woo person at all. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm very practical and this is something very practical that I can do for myself. Is, is it a slow burn for you that you weren't doing these things? Have you always asked these questions of yourself or is this no, late? No, no, this, this is new. Yes, no, new. this is very new. This was I never did and I was always when I was upset or, you know, or, or anxious or, um, fearful about something, I'd just immediately turn to someone else. And it's funny how you know which people in your life are going to give you what answers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, um, you know, when I was dating and I'd have an experience with someone and I would know if I ring this friend, you know, she'll say to me, oh, you know, oh, men terrible. To-. Or I'd ring this friend and she would say something different. She might say, you know, you've got to like stop dating or someone else I know if I called her she'd say oh Kerry you're too difficult you're too cheesy so you pick who you mm. who you contact mm. and it dawned on me that I know what these people are going to say <laughs> yeah. and I know what I want to hear so I can just say it to myself yes and also when you when you dip into friends with that select bias in mind then it's not necessarily helpful because you're choosing to call the friend exactly. to tell you what you wanted to hear yes. whereas you might not give yourself that yeah yeah And also if you've ever had therapy, I mean, I had therapy um, for years and by the end of the whole process, I knew what the therapist would say. And I think that's, but I think that's a really good therapeutic model. By the end, it felt like my therapist was sitting on my shoulder and I wouldn't have to turn to the therapist. I could just go, all right, this is what they'd say. And and I would hear it. Mm. And so you can learn to, to do that yourself. You can, you can learn to tell yourself what you need to hear. Mm. And something, I think I wrote an article about this a few years ago, and I think I put it in the book, but you know, a really good exercise is like to help you kind of get that sense of distance is what I sometimes do. I'm, I'm 
I can sort of verbalize this now. I don't need to write it down, but I still do sometimes, is you write down your experiences. So say you've had an awful fight with someone and you write down, oh, today I saw John and we had a terrible fight and I'm really upset and I think he's never going to speak to me again. And then you go through, you write the whole story and then you go through and you change it all to the third person. So you might, you make up a name. So, okay, so Sally saw John today and they had a big fight and Sally thinks that he's never going to talk to me. And when you do that and you read it back, you actually get this amazing perspective. It's still your story, but you're reading it as if it happened to someone else. And then your kind of your own, you know, friend voice or therapist voice comes through and you think, what would I say to a friend who was saying that? And you'd be like, Sally, he'll get over it. Like, it's okay. You know, he'll, he'll come around and you've got other people and you can start then talking to yourself as if you were talking to a friend. Mm. I find that just a really helpful exercise. Yeah, that's something I've done with couples for, for years in therapy is to take that bird's eye view. And I often talk about them taking the perspective of a journalist because a journalist oh. doesn't bring, should be bringing just the facts, yes. shouldn't be saying, and then I thought that they had said the wrong thing. You know, a journalist speaks yeah. with what, what was seen as opposed to their interpretation. And that perspective, we're so wedded and connected to our thoughts and our beliefs and our biases that they they create hurt they create and we attach to them in unhelpful ways which also links into something else you said in the book you were talking about um craig harper who's a a coach and a speaker and motivational sort of expert i guess and he talks about um the four parts of self i mean i could Mm. there's there's many different ways to skin this cat but i'll go with his because you made mention of it uh, he talks about the public you, the personal you, the private you, and the secret you. Yes. These parts I've said since the dawn of time or since I, you know, for many, many years that we're all made up of parts and they're conflicting. And I think, you know, his his use of those words is quite informative and illuminating. So the public you and the personal, or how would you describe, how would you describe those four layers? Yeah, so the public you is obviously what everyone the sees. you that everybody sees and the you that you put on social media and the you that, you know, a person in the street will see. And then the personal you is um, the one kind of the next level down, so your family and your friends. And then, the you know, so people who get to know you more intimately will know, oh, Kerry's like this, Sabina's like that. And things that not everybody would know. And then the private you is that self that only your most intimate partner or your, you know, your children, your parents when you're young, whatever, only the people closest to you will see. So the parts of yourself that you don't show to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So the parts of you that, that, you know, your partner knows things about you or your child knows things about you or your mother knows things about you that nobody else, you know, in, in your world would know. But then there's a secret you. And the secret you is the you that is you when nobody else is watching. And it's the you that only you have access to. And we all have a secret self. I I think I gave an analogy in the book. Like if I was to show you all my thoughts, it it would not be good for anyone. Like it would not be good for our relationship. It would not be good for me. It would not be good for you. We are not meant to see other people's constant stream of thoughts right? We all have this constant, constant stream of thoughts that can bounce from, right, I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about dinner, thinking about something I said earlier, you know, oh, what's my partner doing? Oh, God, is my child going to be in a bad mood? You know, oh, do I need to go to the toilet? Like, it's just this constant stream and other people aren't meant to have access to it. And there is parts of even our most intimate group of, of loved ones that we will never, ever see and we're not meant to see. So, if all of my thoughts were kind of projected onto a screen and all of your thoughts and all of 
um, my partner's or my kids' thoughts were projected, would I be able to pick them out? I would certainly be able to pick out mine, but would I be able to pick out even my, my child's thoughts? Maybe, maybe not. There might be things that I see in there that I recognise, but my kids all have a whole secret world um, that they're thinking of, you know, ranging from whatever, uni, school, work, Pokemon, mm. you know, friends, and I'm not meant to have access to that. That's theirs and that's what makes them who they are. And we need to be able to spend time with those secret thoughts because they, that's that's our life. Mm-hmm. Who else are we other than our thoughts? Yeah, and that, that came up for me when you were just talking before about the importance of spending time with yourself and asking yourself questions. You were saying, I ask myself questions. But we can only ask ourselves questions with a depth that mirrors or matches our connection to our sacred selves. Yes. Otherwise, we're asking questions at the, you know, the public level or yeah. the personal level or the private level, and that's what we're going to get back. You can only get out what you put in, even yeah. with the conversations with yourself. Yeah. And yeah. that's challenging. But it's a process. And, you know, I wouldn't expect somebody who has spent no time with their thoughts, no time thinking about who they are to delve in and, and you know, be kind of unearthing deep truths, but you can start on a very simple level. Mm. You can start by, like I did, you know, with the book I read, you can start by asking yourself what you thought of that movie before you ask somebody else, before you turn to your best friend who's there with you and saying, oh, what did you think of that? Just ask yourself, what did I think of that movie? Mm. And then find out what somebody else thinks. You know, you can start by asking yourself questions like, you know, if I, the kind of questions you might ask somebody that you're trying to get to know. So, if I could do anything in the world, what would I do? Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that you've got to go and do it. It just means it's it's helping you to get closer to the truth of who you are. Yes, and often I think we edit so quickly. If we get to the point of asking the question, that is, if we get that far, yeah. we ask the question and then we might start to think about it, oh, but I couldn't or I shouldn't or yeah. I wouldn't or they wouldn't think I should or they wouldn't yeah. think I could. Or So we edit and don't give ourselves the experience of exploration. Yes. As you say, it need not lead to action. It need not lead to anything. Like, it, it, But it's just good to have that knowledge and insight. Like I can say to myself now, for example, you know, what do you want for dinner? And I'm on a bit of a health kick at the moment and I'm trying to eat healthy because I didn't for a long time. And so I know what I'm going to make, but I can say to myself, oh, what I'd really love yes. is a cheeseburger and chips. doesn't mean I've got to go and eat it, mm. but it's nice to know that's what I really want. And then I can decide from there, do I want to indulge that or do I want to have something more healthy? And it's the same with big life decisions. Mm. You know, if I could do anything in the world, what would I do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And from there you can say, well, I can't really do that. But what I can do is get a book on that or I can go to a course on that or I can meet other people who've done that. You know, it just helps you to, to as I said, move closer to, to who you are. To you. And you asked some of the questions in the book. What would you do if you didn't need to worry about your family, your friends or your partner? Huh. Who yeah. would you be if you didn't care what people think? Yeah. And as yeah. you say, whether you action it or not, it's the act of asking the questions that's, that's yes. really powerful. You yeah. also said, oh, there was a part in the book where I actually sighed out loud. I went, oh. oh. So that's, as a writer, you know, you're, you're hitting a mark oh, there. I love that. You? And it was now about the, the contagion effect of emotions, which actually oh, I started yeah. a, you just did it back yeah, then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mutual. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Um, I started my PhD on this topic, which I didn't 
didn't get to the end of. It was so complicated with the statistics and the metrics of trying to make sense. Yeah. This was in the family unit of the contagion of optimism versus um, right. negativity. And because there's so many permutations in a family, the statistics were just mind-blowing. So I parked that. But the the idea that our emotions are contagious, um, I think, is really important for every single one of us to acknowledge. I don't know what we do with it all the time, but you said um, being alone gives us a break, basically. Being alone gives us a break from the contagion in, uh, effect of emotions. Yeah, it does. And when you live with other people, it's it's really challenging because you can, you know, your mood can be pretty good and then somebody walks in and they're really unhappy and it just spreads and you know, I know when I was living with my ex-husband, I, I was very, very sensitive to his mood. Um, and now, you know, I live with two of my kids and I'm very sensitive to their moods. And, and when my you know, eldest comes home and eats with us, you know, if he's not in a good space, I feel it immediately. And so it's so important to have a break from that. Otherwise, because we're like sponges mm. and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be dealing with our emotions and the emotions of other people. Mm. And it's very hard to avoid that. And and I think the way to avoid that is is to be able to have a really good sense of ourself and to be able to kind of distance ourselves either emotionally or or physically and to be able to talk to ourselves and say, look, you know, I get it's it's that was hard and mm. and you know, they're feeling that, but it's not me and yeah. and uh, There'll be people listening who will be, I don't have time for this. I don't have time. You know, I've got so many other things. But another point that you make, a really salient point in the book, is that it's the quality of self-time, not the quantity. So this we don't need to go to the Antarctic trekking God, for no. three months to do this. Oh, little no. snippets throughout the day. And you've already given a few, a few tips. Yeah. What would some other ones be of some quality, not quantity, opportunities to connect with self? I think journaling is really important. I think if, if people can journal, um, and again, journaling doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, get out your big diary and write everything down. You can send yourself emails. You can make notes on on your phone. There's actually a really good app um, called Day One, which is a journaling app, and you can literally just type out kind of bullet points about how you're feeling, what you're wanting. It's got prompts for you. It's called Day, um, day One? Day One. Yeah, I don't know. Free that. app. Um so, you know, I think that's a really good way to do it. And then, as I said, to sort of carve out moments in your day that are already there but that you fill with other things. So it's getting rid of the distractions when you are either physically on your own or when, I mean, when you're cooking, for example, so many people when they're in the kitchen cooking or when they're cleaning, they'll put on a podcast, they'll put on the radio just to say I'm going to just take a few minutes while I'm cleaning the shower to just let myself daydream. And, you know, you don't have to be sitting on the couch and, and focus on, oh, I'm going to think now. You can be thinking while you're doing, it really helps when you're doing kind of repetitive, often menial chores, you're sweeping or you're doing housework or you're driving, you know, things that don't require a lot of concentration. Mm -hmm. That's a really good time to let your, let your mind wander. I wouldn't recommend that if you're like 17 and, and <laughs> you know, on your P's, but for those of us who are used to driving, um, or when you're commuting, 
Mm. Um, or when you're exercising, your exercise is a great one because then there is something about if you if you're a runner or a walker or you're you know you're riding again that that repetitive movement seems to trigger the DNM the default mode network which is responsible for daydreaming mm. and things like when you wake up in the morning don't reach for your phone straight away now there's so much written about that but just give yourself space mm. um, when you're showering showering is a great place for for mm. daydreaming mm. Um, and again because we've got technology. You know, it used to be you'd get in the shower and you would think, right? And you'd be standing in the shower, oh, yeah, I've got a great idea that's come out of nowhere. Um, but now when we're blasting the radio or listening to an audio book while we're in the shower, we're missing all of those incidental moments of solitude during the day. If I had to rename your book, it might be Tinder for the Self. Oh, great. <laughs> That's really good. Damn, damn. But no, Where were you when I was I, having meetings with my publisher? But for those who are interested in reading the book, it's not called Tinder for the Self. It's called The Secret Life of You. And it really is a ripping read. I just, I, I've said it multiple times in this conversation, but I just felt like, look, look, just so you know, I'm not bullshitting. As you go through here, there's blue bits just galore. Yeah, I just oh, kept, I kept highlighting so and highlighting. Holding up the book. Yeah, I'm holding up the book, and you can hear the flip of the pages oh, to maybe. show you that, um, you know, I'm not just. Uh, That's what you want, you know. When you're a writer, I know there are a lot of people who are very careful with books, and they don't dog ear them, and and you know, they they don't want to crumple it. I love a book that's underlined, highlighted you know, pages circled, dog ears, that shows that somebody's actually really engaged, engaged. And and I typically listen to books more on Audible because I think, well, I can do that doing something else. So the art of reading the book means that you're more mindful, more present, there's the touch of the pages, then the blue highlighter was going back and forth and the sound of that was sort of rhythmic as well. So even the process of reading your book created some sort of rhythm and cadence in me that I haven't had for a long time. Oh, I'm so pleased. That's just wonderful. Yeah. Thank so, you. Um, now, we do finish these chats on Human Cogs with the same question to all our guests. And the question is, amongst the complexities which we always talk about with our guests in some form or other, who do you think, Kerry, is doing human well in the world? Who is doing human well? Wow. Honestly, I think we're all flawed. I think we're all really flawed and I think we're all really struggling. And I think that there are people who do aspects of being human really well. Um, But I actually, you know, I wrote an article very recently about that. I think that all, I think we have to be really careful about, you know, being too literal about role models or people who inspire us because even the people who are kind of at the top of their fields or who seem to be really evolved in some way are struggling in another way. And I have read a lot of books from, by people that I really admire. I inevitably find out that then they're struggling in some area of their personal life. They're not necessarily living at all. And so I tend to now with people or with, you know, writers and thinkers take aspects of their experience and really appreciate them and take something away from it without ever believing that any one person is is doing everything right because I hate to say it, I haven't met anyone who's who's got it all right because we're all human and we're all we're all struggling with something yeah I I think if I I've never answered I'm going to ask myself the question that we ask all our guests in light of the conversation you and I've just had and I would say that people who are doing human well are those that are connecting to their sacred selves yes 
Absolutely. But uh, Absolutely. I wasn't, I wasn't going to ask myself the question, but you invited me to ask myself questions, so, yeah, so I, I just did. did. Well, that's what I would say. I, I think I'm doing humour much better than I used to. I'm, yeah. I'm happy with how, but, I, you know, we all struggle with things. Yes. And um, I don't think I, I have I'm yet to meet anyone or read the work of anyone who is doing it perfectly and I think that's okay I think I think the struggle is okay it's part of being human I think if we're not acknowledging the struggle we're in trouble yeah Kerry thank you thank you so much we had a few false attempts to get here today but it's so (laughs) great to connect and to share your book and your your other books and the the arc of your life that's come through your reading uh, your writing I should say um yeah really powerful really helpful thank you again this has been wonderful Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. well.